all day. Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. I think we can all agree that Christmas is really about selfish wish fulfillment. And this episode does that for me in spades. It's something I've wanted to do for a very, very long time, and it scratches two pretty particular itches for me. The first itch has to do with that thing you hear all the time. Hell, I've probably said it myself about how Christmas is really a pagan celebration that was taken over by Christianity. This is an itch for me because I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, I mean, duh, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus was born in the winter right at the same time as the solstice, full of Christmas trees and holly and evergreens and all this stuff that so obviously seems like it belongs more to what druids or shamans or polytheists who are going to be out trying to convince the sun god to come back from the darkest day of the year. But on the other hand, no one's ever very precise about what quote-unquote pagan actually means. We do some hand-waving about those druids or mystical Celtic peoples or even try to sound like we know what we're talking about and mention regional Germanic tribes or something. But what can we say with any degree of confidence that isn't just a gut feeling that one thing is kind of similar to another? I wanted an answer to that question, and I wanted a serious historian who knows what we can say and what we can't to basically do the hard work for me. Now, the second itch... Well, this one, this one's totally selfish. I've said before that one of the perks of doing a podcast is that it gives you an excuse to get in touch with anyone you want and ask to interview them. It's like a cheap do-it-yourself press badge that gets you access to people and at least the vaguest of pretenses to start battering them with questions, even hold their attention hostage for a good hour or so. And I totally played that card because I've wanted to talk to Earl Fontenelle of the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, or the Schwepp, for years. I know at least a handful of people listening know who he is because I've turned some of you on to his show. The Schwepp is the kind of show that for me makes podcasts special. Earl is a scholar and instead of writing a book or publishing articles in places where maybe a dozen people will read his stuff, he decided to use his brain and inner library and fascination with one we'll call it relatively narrow topic, into a show that dives as deep as he wants into whatever he wants to talk about. And that topic is badass. And I mean badass in the way that relatively few people may well recognize as badass. Schwepp is all about the history of magic and mysticism and underground religion and secret teachings. In fact, technically, esotericism especially the way he uses the word, means any teaching that's meant only for a select few initiates or students or folk with privileged access. But the cool thing is that it's all about how in the history of philosophy and religion in the West, even all the great philosophers with capital GP, like Plato and Aristotle and Plotinus and on and on, these guys were usually taught to think of as creating a grand tradition of very open rationality and logic and debate-filled academic philosophy. There's a whole tradition of weirdness that has lived and evolved in that very same space as the history of those dry old great books. 
astrology, divination, possession by gods and demons and daimones, as well as more mystical and transformative philosophy that could get you to have like a mystical union with God and such things. There's a whole history of that hiding in plain sight among the grand old dusty men of the Western tradition, and he's laying it all out, starting with the earliest records we have in classical Greek and Roman world. Right now he's made it up to very late antiquity, maybe even the very earliest part of the Middle Ages, sort of depending on how you chop up those periods, but he's doing the whole thing chronologically. And he's told me that eventually we'll get all the way up to modern theosophists and folk as varied as Aleister Crowley and Robert Anton Wilson and who knows what other fringe folk or mainstream folk who end up having an esoteric side. It is well, it's amazing, especially for a philosophy geek like me who read his Latin and Greek authors for comps but never really got to get in there and muck around, especially with the weird ideas. So, first itch, what the hell's the deal with Christmas and paganism? And second itch, talk to Earl. And both of those work together because Earl is nothing if not a specialist in what we can say about the weirdness of the literary and historical record of the pagan world. So a few years ago, I shot him an email asking him what he knew about Christmas. He wrote back, essentially saying, Fascinating question. I know nothing about Christmas in the ancient world, but let me look. And a few years later, here we are. Now I'll offer one caveat, gentle listeners. Earl's always very polite to his audience, saying things like that. And I think I've just outright insulted you before, so I apologize. But I'm on good behavior today. The caveat, though, is that this one is a deep dive into the textual record of what we can and can't really say we have evidence for in that same written record. Before we started recording, Earl and I talked about how one thing we both loved about our favorite podcasts was how they give you the freedom to just let your inner geek run wild with no need to, like worry about whether your audience is really this interested in the details. Uh, we make them specifically for the folk who want to wallow in whatever we're talking about. So I told him to please make me wallow. I mean, come on, look how long the episode is. It's awesome. But I want to give a little outline for people, because I know Earl and I had kind of narrowed down a couple questions about Christmas and pagans. And when we talked, it's like a report on all the data that he'd scraped together. There's a lot here. So here's how to keep it organized. So if you're listening to this, you've probably heard someone somewhere, maybe me, talk about how Christmas comes at least in part from pagan traditions. That seems to be a certain kind of conventional wisdom nowadays. People will generally recognize that, yeah, Santa and Christmas trees don't show up in the Bible. And then once you learn even the vaguest outlines of the idea that quote-unquote pagans had solstice rituals, most people will start to draw lines like, oh yeah, holly and evergreen seem kind of like cool druid and pagany, witchy stuff, so sure, totally makes sense. But here's the thing that makes this a little bit stupid. Not wrong, exactly, but stupid. So first, when people say pagan, they don't know what they mean. Some people think of pagan as their, like, New Age aunt who's all into crystals and nature and Gaia worship. That kind of thing that people who grew up in a Christian context usually think is all subversive and magical and back to nature -y. They like to imagine weird pseudo-tribal, like I said, Germanic people dancing around pine trees to bring the sun back on the darkest day of the year or some such. And maybe. But when you get down to it, that's pretty unlikely. The other thing people will often mention is something about how Christmas is really just a Christian version of the, again, quote-unquote, pagan ritual of Saturnalia. 
that's an old Roman winter festival when they gave gifts and got drunk and decorate everything with evergreen garlands and whatnot. But these guys are completely different pagans from the tribal nature worshippers. Because in this case, we're basically talking about the Roman Empire. Pretty much the opposite of a culture mystically embedded in its natural setting. These are the folk tromping all over Europe, building roads and forcing local people to start paying taxes and speaking Latin. So from the beginning, the idea that Christmas is really pagan can mean two like vastly different things. And I could stop there and satisfy my misanthropy, but I should be more charitable this season. So, okay. So, let's go beyond that sort of conventional wisdom story and try to figure out what we actually know about the origins of Christmas and the original actual pagan context that the earliest Christians were butting heads with. When you do that, though, what you find is remarkably little evidence of anything. What you do see are tons of people making kind of vague analogy, analogical connections between how we think of Christmas today and random bits of ancient history. And it's random because what we actually know about what was going on 2,000 years ago, like what we can actually document and point to and establish, comes to us largely through like copies of copies of half-finished books and quotes of things that quoted something else and summarized something else that talks about how one dude remembered hearing his teacher once say X or Y or whatnot. So if you want to study history, gentle listener, especially the history of classical Greek and Roman world 2,000 years ago, settle in for frustration. History by analogy, though, without any hard evidence, it's kind of a dangerous game. And I know, because I've played it on this very show, like when I talk about how Santa comes from a Siberian shamanic mushroom. Do I have evidence for that theory? Not at all. And the experts I had on saying with grand confidence that we know this and we know that, that's that's like an intellectual parlor trick. We don't we don't know squat about why Santa has the same colors as the mushroom and the other similarities. All we're doing is recognizing patterns of vague similarity and calling it proof. And this is no better than your average conspiracy thinking. It's great fun, but to call it knowledge is to deceive yourself. Okay, so back to Christmas was originally pagan. When you get down to specifics. There are basically three competing theories of how we can know exactly what we mean when we say Christmas is pagan. The first, we already mentioned, which is that Christmas is just some ancient Christians borrowing parts of Roman Saturnalia and making it their own. And we do actually have descriptions of Saturnalian celebrations, but otherwise really nothing from the time that points to any intentional adoption there. So let's call that a currently unprovable hypothesis. Now, the next thing you'll often see online is people trying to tie Christmas to the mysterious ancient worship of the god Mithras. And we'll just put a pin in that one, come back to it, because it, it's weird. The last possibility is the one that has the most promise for identifying some kind of actual documentary evidence. This is the idea that Christmas is celebrated close to the solstice because of the Roman Emperor Constantine, who was part of what was called the Sol Invictus. Cult. Now, Sol Invictus means unconquerable sun, and it was a relatively big cult that basically aligned the emperor with a sun god who's the source of all power and light and can't be killed because every winter he starts growing his power again. But Constantine was also the guy who, so the story goes, converted to Christianity and made the Roman Empire Christian. That would be a perfect place to find a specific pagan celebration turning into what would become our Christmas. Cool. 
But remember how I said history is hard? It's brutal. No one that I've seen can establish any connection here beyond very convenient and satisfying analogies. There's no paper trail, in other words. And I'm an academic, so when all is said and done, I want a paper trail, not just a pretty idea. What can you find in the text from the beginning of Christianity about the relationship between Christmas and those Roman, Sol Invictus, or Mithraic connections lots of people talk about? Is there any hard evidence to support those connections? Earl and I both agree they're really cool ideas, but it's also cool to think that Santa's a mushroom, so it doesn't mean we're on solid ground when we say it. So, Christmas and the pagan world, what do we know? And from here on out, Earl is the man. Well, let's talk about Christmas. Let's actually get this thing going here since you've done all your work. Let's get this show on the road. People say <laughs> that, that if you look outline, that, that people say that yeah, all of this stuff is in some ways a version of the Sol Invictus tradition which is, when you look back, starts to get all mixed up with all kinds of other traditions, just yeah. because we don't know as much, or at least I don't know as much, I'll say. And the people who say that it's all going back to that don't seem to have really looked at a lot of the sources that are yeah. there. Uh, but no, that's why I wanted to ask you, because if anyone is dwelling in all these older versions well enough to be able to navigate them, to ask that kind of question of what connection might there be to Christmas, you'd be the guy. Well. I'm a guy. <laughs> um, well, hey, thanks for inviting me to come on your podcast and talk about Christmas. Um, you kind of threw down the gauntlet. Like, so what's the deal with all this kind of, <laughs> you know, Mithra stolen with, with the caveat that I know you're not going to answer it, but that I know that you've been reading about it and are well informed. So. Yeah. And just like you do on the show, we don't have to necessarily, we're not looking for the answer. What we're looking at, like, what are the possible directions that yeah. in which we yeah. can go here? So what we could do is we can answer some questions, but then kind of re-nuance them afterwards. Yeah. So the, the there's a couple or maybe like three or four big kind of discourses out there about the origins of Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. So there's various versions of the theme that Christmas is actually a pagan holiday mm -hmm. that the Christians stole or adopted or in some way took on mm -hmm. um so they stole the date of the 25th of december which was the festival of the birthday of the day of soli invictus the god of the unconquered sun and why did they do this well they either wanted to steal the shine from day of soli invictus and you know <laughs> or whatever or christ is really a solar deity there's all kinds of variations yeah. on this theme right um there's a few things you can say about this from the get-go. First of all, you get this a lot repeated, totally uncritically, in um, the sort of every year in news media and stuff. They put, there'll mm -hmm. be this sort of yeah. article that comes out like, did you know that Christmas is actually a pagan holiday? That did today. Um, but if you trace the lineage of the argument, it doesn't go... And, and you get it repeated as well by uh, new atheists of various sorts who aren't historian. Right. But it doesn't go back to a atheist critique of Christianity at all. It goes back to anti-Catholic Protestant polemics from mm -hmm. the early Reformation, where Protestant humanists are saying Catholicism 
is really paganism and or platonism so you get like yeah. pagano catholic discourse in in protestantism so the protestants like people like actually um isaac Casobon, who is famous in my field for having uh debunked the antiquity of hermes trismegistus he's the guy who yep. said that hermes isn't an ancient sage from before the flood he's actually a kind of platonist right so he must come from the roman period yeah. this guy Casobon, um really did a lot of work to show how Catholicism, well, not just Catholicism, actually early Christianity, like Paul, the, the epistles of Paul, for example, were very influenced by what we might call Hellenic culture. So the Mysterion in Paul, for example, the mist, the reference to the mysteries. Kosobo is saying this is pagan Greek stuff in Christianity in the foundational mm -hmm. documents. And it goes all the way through. So um if you want to trace this discourse of um, Christmas is really pagan in its various forms, that's where you want to go first. If you want to trace it back from atheists and people like that, but back to very concerned religious people on the Protestant side who are aiming barbs at the Catholic church yeah. saying the Catholic church is full of pagan stuff. We need to get back to like the, the roots. Yeah. And then there's a second kind of major bullshit. Um, so that is bullshit. Yeah. But it's, we can say a lot more about then it's just bullshit because it isn't just bullshit. There's reasons why people why think you could this find and, things like that that would yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff there. Um, the other one is that Christmas has something to do with Mithras, the ancient Roman god Mithras, mm -hmm. and there's some great stuff there as well. It's also bullshit in the sense that the um, the sort of cheap shot of like you Christians are actually celebrating Mithras. Ha ha. That yeah. is bullshit. But yeah. again, there's there's some really intriguing stuff to do with Mithras in this whole story. So yeah. Well, those are two maybe major interesting kind of things to explore, right? The, the third thing I wanted to say, which I just re remembered is, and I don't know if you've had a chance to talk about this at all in your um, incredible podcast about Christmas, but when you start to dig into what we know about the origins of Christmas, there isn't that much. Nope. So, for example, stuff people would expect we could say, like, when did Christmas become an official Christian holiday? We don't know. I mean, what does that even right. mean? Official, you know, where, when, like, yeah. official to whom. But we don't have data on that. We have some points of data, but nothing that really answers the question. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things about the origins of Christmas are open to intelligent interpretation. Yep. And that's, of course, where you have to weigh up not only the stuff about, you know, stuff from church fathers saying these Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus, but also stuff from Roman historians talking about uh, the day of the birth of the unconquered son. Right. And say, okay, what did, how do we make a, a coherent historical narrative from all this stuff? Yep. In fact, there is... A way you can even look at it, which just makes it harder, which is that some of the best stories we have about early versions of Christmas are more Christians complaining about people celebrating Christmas. That's um, true. And there's yeah. more, like more a tradition of that, which doesn't doesn't really help if you want to do just a straight. Well, it does, but it's it's not a straightforward history of Christmas. It's more like there's already been this thing going on that people call a Christian holiday, uh, but. 
there's already problems with it and debates and arguments. Mm. So yeah, so it's not straightforward. So if we want to talk about this stuff, I was thinking for the non-specialist listener, a really good thing to do might be to go through what we know about the Christianization of the Roman Empire, which is going to be the historical background for all of this um, discussion, right? Yeah. So before we do that, uh, some notes on dating stuff in late antiquity. Okay. It sucks. We know surprisingly (laughs) little about this period. Yeah. Uh, One of our major sources on the like sort of second and third century Roman emperors and what they got up to is a book called the Historia Augusta, uh, probably actually written in the fourth or early fifth centuries, but just absolutely full of scurrilous stuff. And it it, totally unreliable as a historical document, but you kind of have to use it. Yeah, because it's all we have in some cases. The historian Ammianus Marcellinus is really good. He's a late antique writer, but most of his book is lost. So we only have the sections covering the years 353 to 378. So we wish we had more of Ammianus because we would know a Mm. lot more about the second century. Very crucial time for the growth of Christianity. Procopius is also decent. Christian historians like Eusebius, people like that, writing from sort of the third century onwards Mm -hmm. um, are problematic for a number of reasons. A, they're obviously biased (laughs) toward Christianity. B, they are often pretty crap historians vis-a-vis critical, (laughs) you know, like, Mm -hmm. do I accept this anecdote or not? If Mm -hmm. if it looks good for my version of Christianity, of course I accept it, right? Yeah. And then they often have crap sources as well. Uh, And if you take those two together, crap historian plus crap sources, not best result. Yeah. We only have one calendar that's actually survived from antiquity, and we'll probably talk about that today. Uh, one calendar that actually survives, like a, a calendar of the whole year and all the kind of fest festival days and stuff, known as the calendar of Philokalos. Uh, so that's a picture of our evidence base. It's patchy, and very often we're con- reconstructing stuff from you know, uh, someone repeating something from someone, from someone, from someone going back to the second century and things get garbled and things. And then you have to judge each piece of information. And do I trust this? Do I not trust this? Mm. So, but some key dates, right. Which I've tried to put together for listeners who know nothing about the history of early Christianity or Christmas, the, what we call the new Testament Christian scriptures, is compiled no the the writings are pretty much finished by the end of the first century ce okay beginning of the second for the gospel of john maybe so in the hundred years after jesus dies that's when the stuff gets written down it becomes canonical over the next few hundred years so that's a very long process and in this period there's lots of other writings that christians are reading that no one told them eventually aren't going to be canonical so Mm. they think they're canonical or they think they're valid or whatever um christianity isn't really on anyone's radar except for jews until the second century at some point um it's it's also very hard to say who's a jew and who's a christian until the later second century um 
In fact, some of your recent episodes, just for those who are going to go listen to the show, are about that. Yeah. Um, Constantine the Great, he's the famous one who makes Christianity the um, the official religion mm-hmm. of the Roman Empire. That's not really what happens. He reigns from the year 306 to 337, but he's the sole emperor from 324 to 337. He has to basically kill off all his rivals in in this kind of tetrarchy structure that his predecessor set up. So once he's like finally done that, he becomes the sole emperor in 324. In 313, he issues the Edict of Milan in which religious toleration is declared, which church historians have read as like this mean this is him saying christianity is the true faith but actually he's it's probably more a pragmatic emperor just trying to stop his subjects from killing each other and fighting and you know over matters religious the council of nicaea happens in 325 ce that's when the trinitarian orthodox catholic position on theology gets set and that's where the catholic credo that catholics kind of recite every whenever they recite it comes from that um then you have a slow process of christianization of the empire which we can see in law codes and stuff like that which goes on for the next 100 or 200 years in the with the the brief and honorable exception of the reign of julian from 360 to 363 who wants to stop all this christian nonsense and get back to the old ways Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much it's a kind of slow march toward increasing Christian hegemony. And then later on with like around the beginning of the fifth century. So the year 399, we have a law that officially closes polytheist temples. So it's mm-hmm. essentially really outlawing what we would sometimes call paganism, right? So fifth century, sixth century. So that's the process. It's slow. It's long. It gets more and more. Christianity is the only way-ish over time, but mm-hmm. it isn't like Constantine's the emperor. Now we all have to become Christians. Right. Which is often how the story goes. Yeah. So I hope that's helpful for people and not too boring. No, but um, it's also helpful because it sort of gives you a better context for how the holiday itself, along with everything else, it wasn't like one day somebody said, hey, let's turn Saturnalia into Christmas, right? It, right. That you've got hundreds of years of which traditions are merging and changing and people are are having to to adapt to all kinds of cultural conflict. And yeah. Yeah. Um, and as you said, you know, if we if we try to approach the when did Christmas actually start uh, question, different types of people is very relevant because we have these testimonies from early Christian intellectuals the people often called the fathers of the church Mm. and they're all against it right so we have clement of alexandria one of my favorite authors writing in the second century clement is a very much a christian but he's hellenically educated um and he's jewish to some degree or at least his teachers are jewish no one can quite agree on how jewish christian he is or how christian he is (laughs) but he in his stromates um well, he doesn't actually come out against um, Christmas per se, the Christmas being the celebration of Jesus' birth. Mm-hmm. But he talks about the dating of Jesus' birth and says, these guys think this and these guys think this. And he's talking about it in the context of world chronology. So he's, based, he's trying to construct a chronology based on the Old Testament, 
which is always fun. Um, <laughs> and he tells us when Jesus is born in the 28th year of Augustus's reign, the 25th day of the month, Pachon. Um, but then he comes out with other dates and um, he mentions that the Basilideans, a very interesting early, so followers of Basilides, the, the first Christian philosopher by many people's reckoning and a man who is often considered the, the, the first Gnostic, or at least the first sort of big name Gnostic on record. Uh, the Basilideses celebrate Jesus' baptism as a holiday. Uh, and they also celebrate the passion of Christ as a holiday. So there's all kinds of that. That gives us a picture in the, in the second century of maybe lots of different people going, let's celebrate this or let's yeah. celebrate that about Jesus' life. Um, Clement notably doesn't say that anyone thinks the birth of uh, Jesus is to be celebrated as a holiday. But Irenaeus, the, the, also writing in the late second century, who is a mostly known as a heresiological author, and he lives in the way, he lives in what's now Lyon, so Latin-speaking world. He says that people are celebrating Jesus' birthday. He mentions it as an aside. So yeah, they, they celebrate it. But Origen, the third century Alexandrian intellectual, uh, esoteric Christian father, uh, says in his homilies on Leviticus 8, 2 to 3, and this is a, a text that you put me on the track of, um, you shouldn't celebrate birthdays at all, uh, since this is a worldly birth. Um, right. Not just Jesus's, by the way, like birthdays, period. <laughs> He's just part of his argument, yeah. 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 And the reason for that, and this is a homily on Leviticus. So the so Leviticus is the the book in the Old Testament which gives us lots of uh, mm. Jewish law in its extremely detailed form, uh, you know, and stuff like menstruation and its relationship to ritual purity. So this is a would seem to be a very unpromising venue for origin to be interpreting stuff as a kind of esoteric wisdom but boy does he do it and he uses the levitican kind of talk about menstruation and the fact that we all come out of a woman's vagina as a launching off point for talking about how the flesh is bad and that's why birthdays mm -hmm. are bad right so the birth the reason you shouldn't celebrate birthdays to to boil it all down is that it's really celebrating coming out of a vagina, and that's not something we should celebrate. So that's origin. <laughs> but then we do have a piece of info that is maybe relevant to the story of Christmas. Um, the Theodosian Code. Are you familiar with the Theodosian Code? I am not. Well, the Theodosian Code is the first big sort of law code that... So Roman law was this kind of big sprawling affair. Most, most of it wasn't written down and for the whole period of kind of the Roman Empire. It was a kind of ad hoc thing. And the, mm. the relation, like sometimes what the emperor said was just law and then other times stuff would actually get written down and all this sort of thing. But in late antiquity, the emperor Theodosius I oversaw a massive uh, project to codify Roman law. This became the Codex Theodosianus. His successor, Justinian, in the 6th century, who really was a Christian fanatic, uh, he puts out the Codex Justinianus, 
which is like the big summa of Roman law, Christian Roman law. And that basically becomes the basis of all European law codes, interestingly. Gotcha. Um, I mean, it's so basic that my um, mother-in-law, who is, uh, studied law in the Soviet Union, the first thing they studied was the Justinian oh, Justinianic wow. Code, right? <laughs> wow. So even in the Soviet Union, you don't try to like de-Christianize European law. You just start with Justinian. He's the, the basis of it all. Anyway, the Theodosian Code is put together. And this is where we really first see our first legislation on religious matters of the sort that becomes very familiar throughout the Middle Ages, where it's like, okay, there's only one faith. There's only one uh, religion, true religion, and so on. And in the Theodosian Code, alongside other Christian holidays that are sort of mentioned, there seems to be some recognition of something like Christmas. So this is in the, this is a, a law put out uh, well, for those who are interested, it's Theodosian Codex Theodosianus 2824. It's a law probably dating to between 400 and 405 CE. And I'll quote Farr's translation. Out of respect for religion, we provide and decree that on seven days of quadragesima and on seven paschal days, when through religious observances and fasts, men's sins are purged and also on the birthday... And on Epiphany, spectacles shall not be produced. So what's this saying? Uh, it's saying you shouldn't have fun on these days, right? You can't have spectacles. You shouldn't have <laughs> right. like circuses and stuff like this. But this reference to the birthday, uh, Dies Natalis, is probably to Jesus' birthday. Hmm. Okay. That seems to be the consensus of interpreters that I've seen. Um, and if it isn't Jesus' birthday, who knows what it is, but... Um, if that would seem to be a reference to Christmas. So I've waffled on a lot, but now we've got there. We've, we've, we've found a reference to celebrating Jesus' birthday from the year 400 or thereabouts. Very cool. Okay. And just the way to talk about that too is, I mean, celebrating a holiday can be done in many different ways, but it is kind of cool that it's, it shows up as a, you know, don't go nuts on this day. Yeah. <laughs> kind, yeah. kind of point. Yeah. But then maybe it's time to get into having encountered Christmas in the year 400 or thereabouts. We should talk maybe about Sol Invictus. Uh, yep. So why the hell do people think that Christmas might have come from the Sol Invictus cult? Um, let me, the, the old status questionis. And the, so this is from the scholar Nilsson, writing in 1948, a, a great scholar of ancient religion, a man who knows a thing or two about this stuff. And this is what he says, quote, the emperors encouraged it, that's the soul invictus cult, the cult of the unconquered son, mm -hmm. for in it they found an expression for their own majesty. As the sun god ruled the universe, so his earthly copy, the emperor, ruled the world. Aurelian introduced sun cult as the state religion, and we still have a reminder of this in the date of Christmas, the rebirth of the unconquerable sun at the winter solstice. Uh, end of quote. So, first of all, the 25th isn't the winter solstice, but never mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's just easily kind of breezily put it out there that um, there's some connection between these two, the, Chris the dating of Christmas and the, the festival of the unconquered sun. He's not being crazy. 
by any means. Mm -hmm. But there's no hard evidence for that right. equation. Right. Um, and I can I can get into the evidence in as much or as little detail as you want. Um, but maybe before doing that, it might be worth talking about the, the day of Sol in Wichtos a little bit. Right, and what it is, because there is... You'll, if you look just honestly, you just look online, you're going to see a ton of people who are, you know, with no worry about the evidence, still making that comparison. There's loads of people who, you know, know enough and have read just enough in order to find that sort of analogy there um, mm. and repeat it. Whether or not they see him, it's something that has come up a lot and that, that I've seen from a lot of various sources. Yeah. Um, but so, again, with no evidence, just as a kind of, oh, it seems like a good analogy that, you know, if that's the way to talk about the solstice, Christmas happens at the solstice, maybe there was some yeah. connection. Christmas, again, Christmas also doesn't happen at the solstice, but that right, that, right. Whole, that little problem, that four days, days difference yeah. doesn't seem to bother anyone. Right. Um, no, exactly. Uh, here's the deal. I'll give you the, the super quick potted history of the cult of Deus Sol Invictus, which is based on hard research. So I've gone back to primary sources on this. Um, so you can call me on any of this stuff, right? Um, the Romans had worshipped the god Sol, the sun, for a long time. Um, we don't know how long, and we don't think the sun was that important in the Roman mm -hmm. religious world. Same with the moon. Yeah. The moon is also a goddess, but she's not that big a deal. They're much more into their Jupiters and Heras and yeah, so on. But other people do worship the sun in antiquity in a major big way. The, the Egyptians, obviously. And the Syrians, or some Syrians, the Syrians around the city called Emesa especially, had a very strong sun cult. What a lot of historians have thought is that um, the emperor Aurelian who reigned from 270 to 275. Unfortunately, a lot of what we know about Aurelian comes from the notorious Historia Augusta that I mentioned earlier, which is mm. a very, very bad historical source. But nevertheless, he did reign from these dates. He did uh, defeat Zenobia of Palmyra, which was like a breakaway kingdom in the far east of the Roman Empire that had been running things independently and had even tried mm -hmm. to like conquer Egypt and stuff. So it was like a major breakaway kingdom. Um, he managed to bring them back into the Roman fold, bring her to Rome in chains and declare victory. Now, just after this, he built a massive temple to the sun at Rome, not just to, to the sun, but to the sun God, Sol Invictus. And from then on, from other emperors, not notably Constant Constantius Chlorus, the father of Constantine, and Constantine himself, Roman emperors on their coinage, in their uh, dedication of temples all over the empire, and in we see this in the inscriptions everywhere as well. This god, the sun god, but specifically called Sol Invictus, the unconquered mm -hmm. sun, becomes really popular. So it's and it's it's very clear that Aurelian does have this in his sort of propagandistic coinage uh, right, releases. Right. Like, Sol Invictus is now a very important imperial god. So is Heracles, so is Jupiter, others, but especially Sol Invictus. And Sol Invictus is, in some inscriptions, not all, is called Sol Invictus Elagabalus, which is a romanization of this Syrian god's name. 
it's in Latin, it's elagabalus. So sometimes we see sol invictus, sometimes we see deus sol, sometimes we see deus elagabalus. Um, but you can pretty much say that these are all referring to the same god in a Roman guise. Now, the Romans are probably not thinking of themselves as worshiping a Syrian god. They're probably thinking right. of themselves as just worshiping sol invictus. The same way Isis had been um, domesticated, the same way the Magna Mater, lots of foreign, originally foreign gods had become Roman gods. Right. And right. if you um, if you think that's weird, just think of how if you live in, uh, I don't know, England, like I live, and you see a church in the center of your village, you think nothing could be more English than this quintessentially English churchyard. And you think, <laughs> oh, hang on a minute. This is like a Palestinian deity <laughs> that they're worshiping in this place. That's really like right. actually a foreign god. No, no, no. Jesus has become an English god. Right. Or a French god right. or whatever. So he, he gods can be domesticated and you don't even they don't even have a whiff of the foreign about them. Right. Right. Plus Romans with being imperial, that's kinda that's a big part of the propaganda of how you centralize what you're doing too. Yeah. And what's really interesting, and this comes into this Aurelian thing, one of the reasons, and this is not in the text as far as I'm aware, but one of the reasons we might think that Aurelian brought the cult of this specific sun god back with him to Rome and, and built this temple. We know he built the temple, but why would he have done that? Because the Romans have a history of when they're going to fight um, a foreign people. And this happened like during the whole building up of the empire period, they make an offer to the gods of that people saying, if you will uh, come over to our side, we'll give you more sacrifice than these guys ever did. <laughs> and when they won, cause they've almost always won, they would yeah. indeed build a temple so this is how the magna mater came to rome allegedly you know so it may be that aurelian did just that he conquered the palmyrenes who were who were going sol invictus will make us conquer and he's like yeah. uh-huh sol invictus didn't make you conquer but he made us conquer and now we have to build a temple to sol invictus yeah. at rome this yeah. is not again not in the sources right. as far as i'm aware but according to pattern yeah and also is a different way to think about worshiping and religion than I think most people nowadays would be like, like it's, it's a very intentional thing on their part. Whereas I think most people would assume, Oh, well you would want to go prove that your gods are better than their gods, but it's, it, it's a different it, polytheism leaves a lot of room for changing things around. And yeah, like, like it's, it's again, think of just in terms of propaganda, it's a great way to get people on your side is to say like, Oh, you may, worship that god but the god now is for us he wants us to win so it's it makes the transition easier <laughs> in, in the minds of some of the people for sure but, and it's very pragmatic right yeah 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 and and it's much more dramatic and it, and it gives like a cool sort of narrative reason for why you would conquer them and and yeah helps them integrate a little bit more maybe yeah. not want to rebel quite so much yeah there's that as well yeah i mean it may well be that the um the Palmyrenes newly reincorporated into the Roman empire yeah. are grumbling and whatnot, but then they see their, uh, their national or local, local yeah. national deity, yeah. Deus Sol Invictus Elagabalus being represented right in the capital. And they're like, okay, maybe this Roman thing's okay. They, they respect the sun God. That's cool. That's part, probably part of the picture. Now this, this sun God cult becomes actually really big in late antiquity, to the point that Constantine the first, the guy who Christianizes the empire, in quotes, mm -hmm. right? That's how he goes down in history. 
uh, he's a big Sol Invictus guy in his early life. He inherits it from his dad, who is uh, his dad, Constantine Constantius Chlorus, was actually carried to the councils of the gods in the chariot of Sol, according to one uh, panegyric poet. So he's <laughs> he's all about Sol Invictus, and during the reign of Constantine the early reign of Constantine. Remember, he reigns from 306 to 337, like quite a long time, especially for a late Roman Empire, 31 years. Uh, in the whole, well, pretty much is all of his reign, uh, Sol Invictus imagery is everywhere. It's on mm-hmm. coins. He's described as a solar emperor, like a sort of sun king before the before uh, Louis XV. Avant la lettre, he strikes tons of coins with representations of Sol Invictus on them until the year 323 at which point maybe something's changed in his maybe his taking his christianity more seriously or whatever um so the link with christmas here and this happens kind of outside the texts and we have to interpret but the day the holy day of the sun or the the dies natalis the day of the birth of the sun of the unconquerable sun is December the 25th. And we know this from this calendar of Philokalos that I mentioned earlier. That's a really interesting text that kind of it, it kind of blew my mind. I had a lot of fun mm-hmm. researching it. Um, our only kind of full calendar from antiquity that survives, as I mentioned. That calls the 25th uh, Dies Natalis Solis Invicti. So the day, uh, the birthday of the unconquered sun. Interesting. That happens to then become the birthday of the unconquered Jesus. You thought you killed him, but he actually, it was actually a victory. And yeah. Jesus is depicted in tons of early iconography as a sun god with the solar crown, sometimes in the chariot, sometimes he's depicted as Apollo. So there's all this iconographic stuff that makes us think that some early Christians were quite happy to take on um iconographical aspects of solar deities and apply them to their Jesus guy, right? So that's a bit of a suggestive thing. Yeah. And that's a part the uh, S-O-N-S-U-N thing. <laughs> it's a part the English similarities there, but the easy joke of Sun Sun. Yeah. But different. Oh, there you go. Different and the Sun Sun. Yeah. Yes, of course. That's not till much later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when when making when making a pseudo esoteric etymologies, be be sure to completely ignore what language you're doing it in. That's a, exactly. a great rule. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you can mix languages. Right. Um. So, this is some relevant data, right? Um, to our bullshit story. Then another thing that's relevant to the bullshit story is that Christians we know are gathering on Sunday. And Sunday, and this is already mentioned by Justin Martyr, who's writing in the early second century. He's our first Christian apologist, and he is, um, you know, a a very good witness for what Christians at Rome were doing. Very Mm -hmm. early Christians in Rome, they're gathering on Sunday, as like a like Christians do now. It's it's the it's the Christian holy day. Now Sunday is not called the Dies Natalis Solis, the day the birthday of the sun. It's just called. Dies Solis, the day of the sun. That's Latin for Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I think what's happened in some of the creation of the story of the whole kind of Sol Invictus origin for Christianity, for Christmas idea, 
is that some of this testimony mm-hmm. about the day of the sun being the holy day for Christmas, Christians rather, has crept into the narrative. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not relevant. Um, yeah. it, is, it is true that we have also in the Theodosian Code early stuff about how Sunday should be a day of rest. You shouldn't have, um, you know, buy or sell stuff. You shouldn't um, do law, legal judgments. So mm-hmm. they, they, the Christians have at some point also, as far as I know, no one knows when this happened or how it happened, but they decided Sunday was their day. Presumably they saw that the Jews had Saturday and they just went, well, mm-hmm. we'll have Sunday. And mm-hmm. uh, to differentiate ourselves. Yeah. You know, and so, but the fact that it happens to be the day of the sun has led to a lot of confusion or maybe it's not confusion maybe they plonked on sunday partly because it's the day of the sun and they they have a solar deity as yeah. well yeah. 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 <laughs> um there's another there is this whole kind of tradition from that's been pieced together from rabbinical sources that the dating of prophets birthdays is often based on or the day, the days that they're sort of they they're born and die on the same day, and this there's various ways people have gone and said the the way Christmas was calculated the 25th December has to do with this kind of arcane Jewish calendrical stuff. You actually kind of pointed me in the direction of some websites that then expanded that. I can read. So this is a little um, snippet from. A very good, generally speaking, uh, website called History for Atheists, which is is very much a debunking uh, sort of mission, but it's written by an atheist for atheists who need to up their history game, right. who who are going around <laughs> spouting stuff about how Mithras is the reason for the season, and this guy's saying, right. no, he's not. Like, there's no <laughs> historical backing for that. Come on, atheists, we need to do better. And he says... On the other hand, there is a strong tradition within early Christianity that points in another and totally non-pagan direction. So he's debunking the whole pagan Mithras, Mm. Sol Invictus thing. Within Judaism, there was a tradition that prophets died on the same date on which they were conceived. Jesus was thought to have died on 14 Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar. That's March 25th, which is celebrated in various Christian liturgical calendars as the Feast of the Annunciation to this day the Feast of the Conception of Jesus. March 25th was also thought to be the date of the creation of the world. So if according to this theological calculation, Jesus was conceived on March 25th, when was he born? You say nine months later, that gives you 25th of December. So um, he then goes on to mention that there are actually a whole lot of other dates mentioned in patristic writings, uh, which is true, but this might be a plausible way of coming up with the the date 25th of December. Um, this is indeed plausible. I would argue, however, I would like push back and say it's no more plausible than the Sol Invictus theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's saying there's this Jewish belief in da 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 da. It's like, right, okay, cool. There's also this Roman uh, holiday, the birth of the unconquered son on the 25th of December, which then later becomes the Christian birth of Jesus day. Why would your Jewish thing be more relevant than this thing with let's let's remember yeah. constantine the guy who brings christianity into the the imperial palace let's say he doesn't christianize the empire or anything like that but he does say okay he surrounds himself with christians he is a christian himself he's um he calls the council of nicaea he says bishops get your shit together and decide on what christian doctrine is because i need it 
you know, the, the reason this is a yeah. pressing issue yeah. is he's trying to create a religion that's going to unify a very fragmented, uh, violent empire. He wants an imperial ideology, so they need to get their act together, right? And he's a super into Deus Sol Invictus cult, <laughs> pretty much to the day he dies. Yeah. And then going forward, suddenly the date of the 25th of December appears as Christmas, as the birth, the birthday of Christ, which had been the birthday of the unconquered son. To me, that's also very interesting. And you could plausibly say that seems like, like what seems quite plausible is that Christian said, we need a day. That would be the one. Or even that Constantine said, how about this day for Jesus's birthday? Mm. I like it. It combines this other imperial cult that I'm also have been, you know, part of and that has been unifying the empire for quite some time now. Why not bring the two together? Yeah. So that's some stuff about the Deus Sol Invictus, the Dies Natale Solis Invicti, and Chris and Christmas. You can't uh, really say that much more than I've said. Um, it seems to me. I mean, you can get into all the inscriptions and you can get into all the legal, datable legal code stuff. But the, there isn't anything where, where anyone in antiquity says the date of Christmas was taken from. Or the, no one ever says the date of Christmas has anything to do with the day of the birth of the unconquered son. They just both occur on the 25th of December. Right. Good. So that's actually nice to know sort of primary source what can we find that does it because there's there's then all the sort of analogical connections that people want to make about like we said the sun the unconquered sun the connections like and a lot of those things can make sense but if you're really trying to make that connection it's a little harder to to yeah. find documentary proof yeah it's it's hard to find documentary proof it's not hard to find again to push back against the kind of super deconstructing everything argument it's not hard to find reputable scholars who know this material really well, like Nilsson that I just mentioned, or mm -hmm. uh, Beck, who is uh, Roger Beck, who's an expert on Mithraism. And maybe we can talk about Mithras next or something. Yeah. But yeah. if you're an expert on Mithraism, you have to know about Sol Invictus because Mithras is a solar deity as well. Um, I mean, he's casually says the 25th of December becomes the son's birthday, the Natalis Invicti. And also becomes the Christian Christmas. So, you know. One thing that always bothers me about this is that people will often do is find some sort of mythic meaning or mythic story that is similar to, and that, that sort of analogical thinking just starts going crazy, which is sometimes insightful, but really hard to pin down and actually use as something like that. yeah it's hard to use responsibly yeah um you know we, we have depictions of jesus early on in um dressed as apollo dri driving a solar chariot right mm -hmm. what do we make of that i mean at the same time we have christians totally like like making polytheist religion into into demonic mm -hmm. worship of of the dark powers right these are both expressions of christianity um at the same time roughly but 
they would seem to be contradictory until mm-hmm. you realize, oh, this is a very diverse movement with lots of different takes right. on what's going on in different places. And no one's invented the internet yet or, or right. the telephone or the <laughs> telegraph or even the postal service. So no one can really talk to each other except by taking very dangerous sea journeys and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, let's do talk about Mithras, though, because let's that's talk about one Mithras. thing that I bet most people listening probably don't know about. So let's. What is the Mithras cult and why has it come up a few times in relationship to Christmas? Yeah. First of all, who is Mithras? Mithras is a god who um, shows up in a new religious movement, which appears around the same time as Christianity. So our first evidence for it is in the first century CE. It spreads very rapidly throughout the Roman Empire. It seems to have been especially popular among soldiers, um, judging from the epigraphic evidence. And... Mm -hmm. Almost everything we know about Mithraism is based on these temples that we find, these uh, which are called Mithraya, which are either in caves or they're artificial constructions, but they're meant to look like a cave. So they'll often have like a, an arched roof and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So the cave symbolism is very important. But we don't really know that much about, let's say, their beliefs, because all we have is these temples. But I mean, there's some really cool... Uh, statuary and um, there's these kind of comic book style depictions of the myth of Mithras that we find in some Mithraya comic book style in the sense that it's like a a bunch of frames in sequential order Mm. showing Mithras Mm. doing different stuff so we kind of can maybe reconstruct a bit of his the story of Mithras's life because like ancient gods he he's born he's born out of a rock actually he's he's the rock born (laughs) god he does exploits uh, including the killing of a bull, which is really important and probably has some astral connections. And then at some point, the god Sol, Helios, the sun god, who's different from Mithras, comes down and seemingly like deputizes Mithras or they become friends or they shake hands. Like there's some kind of rapprochement between Mithras and Sol. At, at which point maybe we can say Mithras becomes identifiable as Sol or they somehow he becomes Sol's deputy or something like that. Uh, so th- that's kind of what we know about Mithras. We also know that his cult was initiatory. So it was called a mysterion. It's a mystery cult. Um, men only. They, they shared a ritual meal, which was very important. And they may well have had a bull sacrifice as part of their ritual thing. Like probably the Torobolium probably actually, this is speculative, but a lot of scholars agree. And it's, it's, it's so grisly and wonderful that I should just mention it. Probably they sacrificed a bull and the blood poured down onto the initiate and they were like bathed in the warm blood from this bull. And that was part of the, at least one aspect of the initiation ritual, which is just great. So that's the cult of Mithras. It grows really rapidly at the same time as Christianity is growing. It dies out pretty um, abruptly, we think, in the fourth by the end of the fourth century, although it will have carried on in certain kind of out-of-the-way corners of the empire in yeah. the fifth century. And... Um, Mithras is a soul is emphatically a solar god associated with uh, the sun, the sun god. Now, how does that get into the Christmas story? 
I'm not actually sure um, I know the whole answer to that. It's a really interesting question of um, reception history, right? And to get into it, you, so, so Mithras, here's another part of Mithras that you might not know. The god Mithras is depicted wearing this special hat and dressed as a Persian. Why is that? Because he's kind of notionally a Persian deity. And indeed, in the religion of Mazdaism, also known as Zoroastrianism, right? Which is mm-hmm. this uh, this native Persian uh, religion, which is uh, very much making a comeback in late antiquity under the Sasanians, the big enemies of Rome. In this religion, there is a god, very important god called Mitra, who is the god of um, telling the truth and contracts and preserving this sort of like right conduct. And he's mm-hmm. also associated with light. But I can, all all gods in uh, in Zoroastrian are associated with light, but he he may well be a solar deity as well. Uh, now, Franz Cumont, the the great scholar of ancient religion and esoteric stuff, writing around the beginning of the twentieth century, had a massive great uh, magnum opus about Mithras. Well, a bunch of he published a bunch of stuff, and his idea was that this was genuinely a kind of Persian cult that was adopted by the Romans and sort of mm-hmm. they, the Roman, it was, it was actually an infiltration of decadent Oriental uh, teachings into the, <laughs> into the Aryan fabric of the Roman empire. So, you know, that's a, a little bit interesting from a historicist perspective, but also um, what has happened in scholarship since he wrote is that no one, but no one almost thinks that, Rome, the Roman mysteries of Mithras were in any real way Persian. So the god, the name of the god comes from Persia. His some of his iconography is Persian, but like everything else is pretty much Hellenistic in yeah. Greco-Roman. Now, there's occasionally dissenting voices who, who actually know something about Mazdaism say, hang on a minute, like there is this thing in Mithraism which probably is Persian. And I'm not gonna really weigh in on that because I'm not a specialist in Middle Persian literature, such of it that survives, which is not enough. But in the wake of Cumont, his like masterwork on uh, Mithras, and I mean, this is like serious scholarly work. He looked at every single temple known at that time, every inscription, every literary attestation that you name yeah. it. He constructs this sort of Persian origin for Mithras. Um, and kind of... Um, him and also people following on him and other writers at the time, like Habel, writing in 1889, identify Sol Invictus with Mithras. So they're both solar deities. And and here one really, really interesting bit of evidence is, for those who say, no, 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 Mithras is one thing. He's not the same as Sol. He's not the sun god. Because you see in the Mithraic imagery, you see Mithras and the soul and soul is above him, usually over his right yeah. shoulder, that they're yeah. clearly not the same God. True. But to push back against that, A, in antique thinking, gods can be both separate and smooshed together. Mm-hmm. So we see this all the time. Like we see magic gems that have like Serapis, Apollo, Hermes as yeah. one God. Um, we even see a magic gem, I think, that has uh, Jesus. 
Osiris, I want to say, as one god. So the power of syncretism, the power of taking gods that have something in common and just ad hoc saying they are one god for the purposes the of this incantation or this uh, ritual uh, act I'm going to do right now is huge. Secondly, yeah. in the Greek magical papyri, volume four, the, in a large uh, collection of addressative rituals from antiquity, I think it's usually dated to the fourth century, we have something called the Mithras liturgy, the, uh, the Mithras liturgy. Most people think that this text has nothing to do with the cult of Mithras. Some, again, some people say, no, it does. It was originally presented as by you know like by, by another great scholar as this is the uh, this is the initiation ritual of the cult of Mithras. We have one attested written version of it in this Greek papyrus. No one thinks that anymore, but it is a genuine document of ancient religion, and it talks about a god called Helios Mithras, Sol Mithras, Mithras the Sun. Yeah, and we have lots of other stuff that makes us think that people could very easily slip between talking about the sun and talking about Mithras. Like, they're the same guy. So that's there. To push back a little bit against people who say, well, Mithras is just a totally different god from the sun, so this is just nonsense. No, no, not true. I know too, and this is getting back to the the sort of connection to the Persian, but there are people out there, again, more in this sort of analogical kind of things, but who try to find uh, the the Indian the the mitra in the in the um uh the vedas mm. uh they try to say that there is some connection that maybe the persians got mithras from mitra uh and that in the rig veda it's the bringer of the dawn or something like mm. that and so that you do have this other connection to this but then that also depends on then if the mithras cult was from persia then maybe from persia you get it from india and and i've just i've seen those out there but it's just another way that that often people try to find some connection between yeah all these various sun gods um, so, which is just fun to find a vedic connection to christmas well the, vedic, really the thing about the vedic it. connection <laughs> is um and the connection with zoroastrianism mazdaism yeah the vedas and the earliest strata of mazdaist belief both come from the Indo-European heartlands. So that these, yeah. these two different Mitras probably were the same guy originally. They've, but by the time the Persian Mitra and the Vedic Mitra have evolved into the forms that we see them. So we see the Vedas are very, very early text. Yeah. The Persian material is written down quite late, but it is widely agreed to go back very far in oral tradition. Yeah. Um, they've evolved. So you don't need to say that Myth, Mitra, the Persian, comes from the Vedic guy or the other way around. Mm-hmm. They both come from some original dude called Mitra or something like Mitra. Yeah. But we're talking like way bef- way prehistoric. Right. That's probably right. But there's no like filial connection. It's not like the... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you add what I've just said about Mithras to what we said earlier about the cult of Deus Sol and Wictus, mm-hmm. it's not too hard to see how Mithras is the reason for the season came about, right? <laughs> yeah. Mithras is the sun. Yeah. The sun god is the Roman cult that was like the imperial, the closest thing to an imperial cult right up until the moment when Constantine said, no, 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 there's a new imperial cult. It's Christianity. Yeah. Therefore, Mithras is Christ or, you know, some variation on that. Right. 
Yeah. It's really fascinating. One of the reasons I think Mithras is such a great um, palimpsest upon which to scribble all manner of weird speculative nonsense, right? Is Mm -hmm. is precisely because we wish we knew what these guys were up to Mm -hmm. in these temples. And the temples are, they're everywhere. And they're really enigmatic. And they're really mysterious. And um, we just wish we knew, but we don't. So you just want to fill in the blanks. Right. Um, th- there is one thing I, I could maybe say here about the connection between Christianity and Mithraism, which um, has been downplayed by the debunkers. And I think this is, it's not fair to do this. You know, the debunkers say that look, there's no connection between Mithras and Christ. Right. And, and it's true. Like there's all these kind of stories about Mithras is born from a rock which is kind of like a virgin in some way. (laughs) So the story about Jesus being born from a virgin and Mithras being born from the rock. I mean, okay, no one's had sex with a rock and no one's had sex with a virgin. I guess in that sense, they're (laughs) both virgin, but it's not really a compelling analogical uh, connection. If you actually look at what we can reconstruct of the Mithras myth and the Christ myth, there's not, they're they're very different. They're very, very different. Um, So all that's bullshit, let's say. But... Ancient Chris, early Christians, um, Justin Martyr, whom I mentioned earlier, writing in the second century, also Tertullian, a Latin language church father, also writing in the second century, a bit later, I think. So two guys, er, very early second century Christian fathers, right? Both say that, well, okay, let's say, let's just, let's look at what they actually say. Justin Martyr in his apology uh section 66 so he's writing in like between 155 and 157 ce okay justin martyr talks about the mithraic meal that i mentioned earlier how all the Mm. brethren get together and take this meal and he says that it's very similar to the communion uh Mm -hmm. ritual in christianity and the reason for that is because wicked daimones have inspired have stolen the communion ritual and put it in this evil satanic form which is Mithraic. <laughs> so in other words the Mithraic meal reminded justin martin uh, martyr so much of yeah. the christian communion ritual that he had to he had to debunk it and say it's not the real thing it's inspired it's a demonic sort of parody, demonic version yeah. right that's awesome there's no way he said that unless there was a lot of similarity right right well, that's also cool that then that similarity is back there, right? That, it's there. That those, exactly. those worries about how similar these things are is there. Yeah. So the idea that you get, there's no similarities at all between Christian and Christianity and Mithraism, like debunking kind of vibe that we have a lot of people saying now. Uh, they're right about a lot of stuff, but in this case, you have to explain why it seemed so similar to Justin Martyr and also Tertullian who also says that the Mithraic rites are satanically inspired imitations of the sacraments, particularly the ritual meal, um, which they perform mm. as a semblance, um, imago, in an imago of the resurrection. Why he feels obliged to say that. If it's so similar, not only, especially the meal, but also all the sacraments, and even mm-hmm. the, the theme of resurrection, is there in Mithraism, according to Terhulian, who seems reasonably well-informed, to the point where he has to kind of defend Christianity against this by saying that's the demonic like parody of or, or take, take off on what we do, which is the real stuff. So this, this not only was awesome. 
um, was Mithraism threatening to early Christians because it was very popular? It was also spreading to all these kind of uh, outposts of the Roman Empire at the same time Christianity was. So it was a competitor yeah. in the marketplace. It also had specific things that it did that they were very um, uneasy about because it seemed so much like what they did. I like that a lot because it it's new ammunition for that theory that the history of Christmas is all about people complaining about Christmas or about things that it shouldn't be connected to, but that it actually are. That's yeah. I like that a lot. Okay. <laughs> I never, I never thought of the history of Christmas that way, but I like it. I like it. It's, it's absolutely true of the American history of it. So, I mean, really? Oh yeah. The, from the Puritans on, it's all about complaining about how you shouldn't celebrate Christmas or how, when people do, they do it the wrong way or, you know, right. All, all They're actually celebrating like Satan. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I love that. Um, and, you know, as with so much of Protestantism, um, the, the basic arguments which are alleged to go back to a kind of back to scripture, just read the original documents kind of yeah. methodology, right? Get rid of all that Catholic pagan stuff, which is what the Puritans were about. They actually really go back to Augustine, a lot of them, mm-hmm. writing in the fifth yeah. century, Christian father. And he, and he's the arch Catholic, if anyone is, maybe St. Thomas Aquinas is more Catholic even than Augustine, but Augustine is pretty much at the center of Catholic theology and everything. Yeah. Um, so he's being kind of silently co-opted for this fundamentalist Protestant thing that's mm-hmm. meant to be back to the scriptures, but it's actually back to Augustine. It's back to late antique Christianity, in fact, way yeah. after the early Christian stuff is long gone. In tracing these things, then, it seems like what we find are some connections, that there are recognitions that other people have noticed similarities at the very least. Yeah. That we don't necessarily, we can't necessarily say that there is evidence that yes, the Mithras cult influenced this, or yes, the Roman celebration of Sol Invictus was Christmas, but there are enough examples of other people recognizing those similarities mm. way back. And the thing, the fact that these, these recognitions go back to antiquity, that's the interesting yeah. part. So Christians yeah. who are scared about the Mithraists because they seem to be, they're, they're perceiving them to be kind of treading on their turf. So yeah. this ritual meal, maybe something to do with resurrection. We don't know what kind of resurrection mythology there might have been in Mithraism, but Tertullian obviously finds some there. But also, we could extend that to Constantine, where he's been raised as a sol invictus devotee by his dad. Mm-hmm. He's been through, I mean, constant people, Constantine is like a, a very complex and interesting character he spent most of his adult life waging war waging civil extended civil wars against other members of his own government who raise armies and stuff like this and he's coming at the end of uh what's often called the the third century crisis in the roman empire so there's been uh repeated economic crises stagnation um currency uh solvency crises all kinds of stuff there have been plagues there's been endless warfare with various barbarian groups on the edges of the empire looking going ooh things seem really disorganized over there and the army's nowhere to be found let's uh go in and take some stuff so all it's been a really a hard time and constantine is part of a move toward shoring up the empire by making it into a total overarching mi- military dictatorship 
that yeah. functions to feed the army, which then makes everything else possible by just going around and killing everyone who threatens the yeah. order. Yeah. Right. Pa- certainly part. I'm not, I'm not even, even implying that this is the only reason he brings Christianity into the picture. Right. Definitely not doing that, but part of the reason why he brings Christianity into the picture in the way he does is he sees it as a likely candidate for uh, a, let's say, Deus Sol Invictus cult 2.0, an even more unifying cult that can yeah. really unify the empire. He's probably looking over at the Sasanians, who are the big, em- the big state enemy of Rome, the, the eastern enemy, the, uh, the, the Persians. They have this new kind of revamped cult of Zoroastrianism, Mazdaism, and he's looking at them and going like, they've got shit running on rails and they have like a centralized religious autocracy. We could do that too over here. It's too, it's, it's messiness does not belong in Constantine's political program (laughs) for reasons of just survival. Right. So that being the context, the fact that he takes what is the, the, Deus Sol Invictus cult is the closest thing you have to a an imperial cult. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the whole idea of an imperial cult is very problematic in this period, but the closest thing you have to that, where you have a bunch of emperors in succession who've, whose primary kind of, um, when they do inscriptions to themselves or when they compare themselves to a god, which they do a lot, or when they depict themselves on a coin as a god, which they do a lot, it's Sol Invictus, Right. Um, that's where Constantine comes from. And then he gets this new thing, Christianity, and seemingly just puts the two together to some degree, at yeah. least. Um, so very plausible that the birthday of the unconquered son, which has been celebrated for quite some time now in the Roman Empire, as far as we can tell, by some people, anyway. It's a very popular cult. We have inscriptions to the Unconquered Sun from all over the place. Mm. Um, Why wouldn't you just take that as your birth holiday for this new religion that you're grafting onto the imperial administration? Yeah. Very different from Christmas today. (laughs) In in that context, too, by the way. Um, I mean, Yeah. yeah, sort of to help unify the military machine. Yeah. That's not what I think most people who talk about Constantine Christianizing the Roman empire think about, but no. Uh, yeah. Or certainly not in the, in the peaceful stories about how he was such a nice emperor. He was such a nice <laughs> guy. No, he, he was, he was really, really, this is newsflash. Constantine was, I don't care what your definition of There's a whole range of possible definitions of nice guys out there. Yeah. I do not care what your definition of nice guy is it will not include the Emperor Constantine. I guarantee that. It, it's impossible that it would. He is, he is a murderous, uh, ruthless, pragmatist bastard. Living in an age when it's impossible not to be that. Right, arguably. right, yeah. That anyone else is going to get, is not going to survive what he survived. <laughs> but so there's some stuff, um, and I hope it wasn't too dry and boring, but maybe... No, no, no. Because, I mean, honestly, because there's so much that, I mean, just like anything on the internet, there's so much out there that people will say there are these connections or scholars will say these connections, but to actually see the context of what they have to support what they say or the the reasons for which they say it or how much they don't have and still say it, 
that's really that's really fascinating and useful. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more data um, that I've sort of collected. The closest thing we have to hard data. A lot of this stuff is, you know, the, the law code stuff is pretty reliable. Um, yeah. Because of its nature, it's been published as law code and dated and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. A lot of the other stuff about the emperors and all that, that kind of thing is, is a lot harder to interpret. But the I think part of the reason why everyone bases, um, you know, like if you read someone very reputable, like Nilsson that I cited earlier, a great scholar of ancient religion, and he just says, you know, the, 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 the birthday of Sol Invictus was the 25th of December, something still preserved in the date of Christmas. He doesn't, that's not his exact words, but I've paraphrased him. And it's, yeah. it's easy to see how I've just created a whole myth for the origin of Christmas. Mm-hmm. What he's doing is something much more nuanced and it's based on really sifting all, not only the evidence we've talked about today, but a lot more evidence. Right. And come up with right. a very plausible, but not exactly provable chain of events. And if you want to look for the really, really provable stuff in antiquity, just, you know, you can pretty much forget about writing history because <laughs> like, for example, the early, the history of early Christianity is just fraught with holes and problems and, um, it's it's a minefield it's yeah. i mean it, it's great it gives all these kind of early his, historians historians of early christianity jobs and they can go to conferences and argue endlessly over <laughs> the beliefs of different gospel writers and right, right, different right. textual interconnections and all this kind of stuff but it, it's not a place where you can really say this is definitely what happened yeah yeah well i feel bad for anyone who thought that when i was going to have someone about the secret history of western esotericism on think that we would find out the secret spells of ancient Christmas celebrations, but um, it would be nice if we could, and that would be fascinating <laughs> if we could actually find that stuff. But I think this is great. So. One thing that might be worth kind of just to, to bring this out into a broader perspective is the way in which pagan, the concept of pagan functions in at least two different ways. One way is a pagan is someone who believes in more than one God, right? Mm-hmm. But the other way, or an another way, is that a pagan is someone who subscribes to a certain aesthetic. And especially in a kind of Northern European context, that's going to be an aesthetic involving a lot of like dark dripping conifer woods and uh, mistletoe and um, kind of earth imagery and maybe, maybe some, you know, it's pagan stuff like like the wicker man like the movie yeah. the wicker man you know this is pagan oh, yeah. it's it's a whole vibe it's a whole aesthetic which yeah. has developed very in very modern recent times it, it yeah. uh, partly comes out i think of um, popular reception of neo-paganism within occultism oh, yeah. you know like oh, no, i mean you mentioned wicker man that whole folk horror thing yeah. is totally the way it's being marketed <laughs> yeah point, so point, that yeah. Vi- that's a very recognizably pagan aesthetic right yeah. so in the 19th century, which is, I think, where you'd locate the birth of that that aesthetic in Gothic fiction, romanticism, uh, ideas about the Druids, and all this kind of pseudo-historical stuff that people were um, rethinking their history through. Yeah. You get a whole bunch of stuff in Christianity, which is rebranded as pagan survivals within Christianity. Yeah. Taking stuff that had been identified by the earlier Protestant polemicists and 
using it for a slightly different purpose. Instead of saying yeah. that, you know, Catholicism is bad because of this and we're the pure Christians saying we don't care what kind of Christians anyone is. We're just noting that Christianity is full of pagan stuff and that maybe, and then you get, you know, Margaret Murray, the, the witch cult in, in Europe and these ideas that like paganism is this sort of deep current of European yeah originary aboriginal belief that's still yeah. simmering beneath the surface right <laughs> yeah. it emerges Absolutely. through the christian veneer in all these yeah. contexts yeah yeah so that is pretty much all ahistorical it, mm. unless you're doing the, mm. the history of ideas in the 19th century in which case it's very relevant it's, but if you're looking at the history of europe it's it's made up and yeah. so we have all these things like halloween like mm -hmm. um the green man and in where I live in, I live in um, on Dartmoor in Devon, and we have lots of uh, really cool churches around here, which include a lot of green men, which are these yeah. sort of carved stone faces of of a dude's face made out of leaves, um, and a bunch of other pagan stuff in churches. Uh, none of which is pagan, as far as anyone. There's no evidence that any of it's pagan. It's it's expressions of art in a church context by medieval craftspeople who yeah. thought that yeah. this was the sort of thing you put in a church. Um, <laughs> yeah. gargoyles aren't pagan the devil's not pagan even though okay iconography of the devil sometimes owes something to the iconography of yeah. the god pan from antiquity but he's he's also not pagan so none of this stuff is pagan and that just actually means that christianity is way more interesting than people sometimes give it credit for speaking of the green man there's a really interesting problematic book about uh santa claus the last of the wild men uh, oh, yeah. by a woman named Phyllis Seifker, but she basically connects Santa to the green men and to the sort of the, the woad man or the wild man and a lot of European uh, ideas, but then talks about those ways that it's again, paganism, old paganism coming through Christianity and sort of Santa is the way that that stuff is finding an expression. Again. I love so, it. Yeah. All kinds of, of wild things, but she makes her best effort to really collect all the data that she can to do it. But, but yeah, the actual connections are no, but it actually does point what you said about 19th century when a lot of those green man legends or the legends of the wild men were really starting to get popular again. Yeah. That's when it goes back to, that's when it starts. Mm. Mm. And, um, and yeah, there's lots of interesting aspects to that. The, um, if you want to write a tr the true history of Santa, and I don't know if you've ever encountered this because you've obviously read a lot of interesting stuff about Santa. But I feel you, you've read, of course, that Santa is the um, the shaman coming down the, oh, the yeah. smoke hole in oh, the yeah. middle of the, the oh, yeah. shaman's He's Europe, the Siberian right? shaman who, yeah. yeah. Yep, 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 yep. But my personal favorite, which I don't know if anyone has ever followed up, but um, Santa is, of course, the actual name of an ancient Hittite god. He's called Santa. Oh, that one I don't know. No, and huh? uh, that's the secret history that needs to be written. Ah, okay. Santa, the ancient Hittite, Hittite uh, god. god who awesome. survives okay. in attenuated form in the modern celebration of Christmas. I bet you, because the Hittites were in Anatolia, which is the, the heartland, which well, it's the part of the Roman Empire bordering upon the Persian realm. It's the place where mm -hmm. our very earliest uh, references to the Mithras cult come from. So we're going to have no trouble bringing Mithras into the story, right? Oh, wow. Santa, okay gets handed on to the Mithraists, the Santa, the Mithraism, Mithraism is actually a Santa cult, obviously. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mithras is Santa. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I know how I'm spending my afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's obvious, if you look at Santa's hat, 
He's got this red hat with a little dongly bit off the side. If you look at Mithras's hat, red hat with a little dongly bit at the top. Case closed. Awesome. 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 Huh. Okay, cool. Yeah. Like I said, that's my afternoon now. <laughs> I'll, I'll go find that case. Earl, thank you so much for all of this. I appreciate it. And everybody, I've mentioned it before, I'm pretty sure, but the Schwepp Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, loads and loads of good stuff about the whole side of the Western intellectual tradition that isn't so much talked about or isn't talked about well, everything from magic to astrology to odd mystery cults in the ancient world, but definitely take a look and or a listen, I should say. And Earl, thanks so much for doing all the research for this and for talking. My pleasure. It really was my pleasure. It's fascinating stuff. And it's what I do. I love I love uh, getting to the bottom of things. So thank you for prodding me in the in that direction. Absolutely. I put a link to the Schwepp on the show notes to this episode, and I really hope you'll check it out. You can hop in anywhere and not be lost. Just pick a topic or a writer, and Earl does a great job of both introducing who he's talking about, but also quickly getting you into the fun stuff. He also does a lot of interviews with specialists on particular topics that are fun and informative and not the kind of thing you're going to find anywhere else. He has a second feed called the Schwepp Oddcast, where he interviews people from lots of different angles and backgrounds and associations with esotericism, not at all ancient or medieval or even academic. And in fact, I stumbled on a show the very first time because I was looking for podcasts with one of my favorite writers, John Crowley. And Crowley had written a whole series of novels all about Renaissance magic. And um, so he had one foot in that esoteric world. And I was immediately hooked. But this was great fun for me. And I was also pleased that a while back I got Earl to read Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, a science fiction fantasy series with a heavy dose of esoteric and Gnosticism and mystical stuff going on. And if you listen to my other show, you know how big a win that was for me. So, But thanks to Earl, I can now just link to this show to be really irritating whenever someone says, oh, we know Christmas is all pagan really anyway. We may well suspect that, but we certainly don't know it. Or at least we don't know exactly what that means. But we do, at least, have a lot of really cool ways to trace how it might be the case. So next up will hopefully be the story contest. And I want to give a huge thank you to all the folk who have visited my coffee Ko-Fi page and dropped a donation. I'm already on my way to paying for next year's contest because of everyone's generosity. So if you too are feeling in a gift-giving mood, the address is ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. That's ko-fi.com slash Weird Christmas. Ko-Fi Coffee, I, I'll never know how to pronounce it, lets you, lets you donate any amount that you want, big or small, and I, of course, will appreciate everything so much. And besides, it just gives me a little tingle in my nethers when people tell me that my weird little hobby has become part of their traditions. I will do my dead level best to keep adding a touch of the strange and the historical and the unsentimental to your holiday time. So now I'm off to finish the Flash Fiction episode but I have to remind everyone, please, don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. Cut down a tree and put it in your house. Go to the mall and buy a piece of blouse. Burn a log in the fireplace. Deck 
So I think you're a pain. 